one of the things you talk about in the book is concept of the, the model black. What the model black is, really, it's the black leader who thinks very carefully and very intentionally. And this is not a black leader who somehow feels that they're a victim. They've got no sense that, that white people are the enemy. But what it does mean is they are constantly having to consider the behaviours that they choose in a way that white leaders don't have to. Hello and welcome to the Inclusive Exclusive, a podcast brought to you from the World of Work Institute at Henley Business School. I'm Dr Melissa Carr and today we're going to be talking about race at work and how organisations can further inclusion in the workplace. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr Barbara Bander to discuss her research which draws on the experiences of Black British leaders navigating the challenge they face and the strategies they adopt for success in the workplace. Welcome Barbara. I'm delighted you can join me today to discuss your book, The Model Black, How Black British Leaders Succeed in Organisations and Why It Matters. Barbara, can you tell us a little bit about your career and what led you to write this book? Yes, I've had a, a career of uh, a few different parts. So I started off in international marketing in the pharmaceutical industry and then just over 20 years ago moved into the business school world, initially as marketing faculty and then morphed into leadership faculty, which I thoroughly enjoyed and then did a lot more work in the area of leadership, change, strategy, how they all, it, where they all intersect. So working with large groups, facilitating workshops, designing workshops as well. So that's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. Now I run my own business, doing consulting, and I'm also a visiting professor at Rotterdam School of Management in the Netherlands and do a lot of work for Duke Corporate Education. Thanks, Barbara. So when did you start writing the book? So you, it was, I mean, obviously, as part of the book, it draws on in-depth interviews. So you spoke to Black British leaders. Some of them were really well-known leaders, such as David Lammy, MP, Sir Trevor Phillips. What was the process in terms of accessing those? And, you know, how did you actually do the research for the book? It's interesting because the book was in gestation for probably about the last 20 years because I, I felt there was nothing really out there that talked about the Black British experience. And in a way, lockdown did me many favours, one of which was, well, how will I use my time? And that was the point at which I thought, this is the time to write my book. And I'm probably nearing the end of my career, so maybe the risks are no longer as great as I perceived them to be earlier. So I reached out through contacts, through my brother, as it happens, had many contacts, friends, and called in all favours and was very fortunate that people like David Lammy, my daughter is one of his constituents, so he was very open to having a conversation. And obviously people like Trevor Phillips, I was delighted to have them. And they were no more important than the regular Black leaders who are working there, if I can call them that, who are working their way through organisations. So it was mainly word of mouth, to be honest. And the leaders you spoke to, so they they ranged in seniority and they ranged in sort of levels within organisations and tenure and amount of experience. So it was a real broad range of people that you spoke to. Is that right? Yes, it was 
to an extent in that I needed to speak to leaders who had been in organisations long enough to have a sense of what it meant to rise through the organisation and all the challenges they had. So most of the leaders I spoke to had at least 15 years experience in some kind of organisation. And then towards the end of the book, you'll notice that I do a particular chapter based on younger leaders, so leaders under the age of 30, to get a sense of what the similarities or differences between their experience experiences and those with a longer tenure. And one of the things you acknowledge in the book is how often different cultures, ethnicities, countries of origins mean that Black people's experiences can be conflated. But one of the things you talk about is how despite the differences in backgrounds, um, there were some commonalities in terms of how these leaders had learned to navigate the workplace. You have some really useful models and theories and concepts within the book. And one of them I found really helpful was this process you talk about the scan model, uh, which is about this navigating in the moment. Can you explain to us how that works? Yes. One of the things, when I talked to the Black professionals, they talked about the fact that they go into work every single day thinking about how they might respond to a comment or some kind of experience that just isn't quite right. It doesn't necessarily mean it's overtly racist, but they get a sense something's wrong. Maybe someone's talking over you in a meeting. Maybe someone is saying a comment that's not so pleasant. So how do they deal with that in the moment? And what they said almost universally was that They didn't do anything immediately, but they went through a process and that process involved them, first of all, taking a moment to think about what was the situation that they found themselves in. So what happened? And then confirm, was that really what happened? So let's say, for example, someone had talked over you in a meeting and this was the third time it happened. And you're thinking they never do that to any of my white colleagues. So you confirm that is definitely what's happening. They're definitely speaking over me again. Then the A was around analysis, really thinking through this individual. Who did it? Are they senior to me? Are they more junior to me? Should they know better? Have they been educated? So really taking a time to think about that, the issues pertaining to the person who'd spoken over you. And then there was a decision to be made as to what do you do next, if you do anything next at all. And whilst it's just taken me a couple of minutes to talk that through to you, the Black leaders were doing this constantly in the moment. Shall I speak up? Shall I not? Shall I ignore it? Shall I let it go? And that was using up a lot of emotional energy, energy which really organisations could be using much better to help them to become more creative or just to do their day job. I think reading the book and reading the stories and the experiences of the leaders you spoke to, one of the themes that ran throughout the book is very much about this idea about the mental energy that that takes. So that I think, you know, it's something that ran all the way throughout the book that continues the mental energy of dealing with those situations, the sort of the emotional labour that goes into that. And one of the things you talked about in there is about weathering. So over time, you know, it can wear you down and you have this sort of sense of weathering from these continuous experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes from some wonderful research that was done in the US, which actually looked at at mothers who were giving birth and tried to work out why was it that a lot of the Black mothers did have a lot more health problems. And when they broke it down, it was purely about 
race and the racism they'd experienced. I also heard in a lot of the comments from the Black leaders I spoke to, they were tired. They were starting to feel worn down by it. And some of them had left organisations because it became too much. They felt there was like this constant sense of exhaustion from having to constantly scan, constantly to work out, how am I landing? How do I need to be today in order to be accepted? And I'm not saying that this only happens with Black leaders. But clearly, there are particular layers that are specifically relevant for Black leaders. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, for the Black leaders you spoke to and their Black experiences, there's this continuous sort of process of thinking about how am I coming across? How is this going to land? What has happened this moment? And you talked about one of the things there almost about this idea about intersectionality. So, you know, not all Black leaders' experiences are the same, and the experience is often conflated. And Some research that was done at Henley when we looked at the equity effect found that, speaking to your point, that, for example, black women also were probably the most disadvantaged in many ways. And they face, again, sort of different levels of disadvantage. So these things can often intersect. Exactly, as you said, yeah. Absolutely. And what was also interesting, and I mentioned it in the book, there is no such thing as the Black leader. Yes, I identified things they had in common, but clearly some of them were educated in abroad. Some of them are educated in the African countries or in the Caribbean or elsewhere, or some of them had different levels of what I call cultural capital. So the extent to which people felt the need to navigate often depended on their starting point. So if you're brought up in a very well-off family, you've got a really good, strong sense of self, that person has to move a little bit less than the person that perhaps is much more working class, so another intersection, where perhaps they have very low social capital, where they have to work a lot harder. One of the things you talk about in the book is looking at exactly this, is you draw on this concept of the the model black and talk about it as as a new trope. Can you explain to us what you mean by the model black? I didn't set out to find the model black or to identify the model black. But when I did the research, what became clear was that there were a number of attributes that these black leaders had in common. There were nine. Um, They all seemed to have very high emotional intelligence. They all seemed to be very resilient. They all seemed to have a strong sense of self. So they had all of these attributes. And in addition to these attributes, they had very specific behaviours, which I talk about. I talk about squaring. I talk about self-silencing, and I talk about softening. So it was all of this that made up the model black. And what the model black is, really, it's the black leader who thinks very carefully and very intentionally about how they want to be in the workplace. And this is not a black leader who somehow feels that they're a victim They've got no sense that that white people are the enemy. In fact, on the contrary, everyone they meet with are are well-meaning. But what it does mean is being black means they are constantly having to consider the behaviours that they choose in a way that white leaders don't have to. So I talk about the model black as, as being a kind of new trope and What I mean by that is that, you know, we often talk about tropes like, you know, the black woman being the carer, the mammy, or we talk about the aggressive black woman or the angry black woman. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if there was a trope that talked about the model black, a positive trope that says, actually, this is a black leader who is 
thinking, as I said, very strategically, very carefully about their career, choosing what they do and is completely unapologetic. That's the model black. I think what I really enjoyed reading it is, is it, it really does, you know, talk about this intentionality about how you navigate the workplace. And for example, you know, there, you have these sort of nine dimensions or behaviours that, that you talk about. One of them you talk about, which I thought was really interesting, is this sense of knowing who you are. And I think that really interested me because of two things I think I observe that happen in organisations. Sorry, this is going to be a two-part question. One of which is around, we often talk about this thing about imposter syndrome. Now, as a concept, I really do not like the concept of imposter syndrome because I think what it does is it it minimises the fact that for some people, they are in a sense an imposter. You know, if you aren't, you know, the norm, the white, middle-aged male you're continuously pushing against not often being, you know, the sort of the the norm. So I think it sometimes it negates that experience. And the second part was about this idea about bringing your whole self to work, which I also think in many ways is a sort of an optimistic concept that we can do this. Uh, Sorry, it's a two-part question, but I don't know what your reflections are on this idea about how do you knowing who you are and bringing yourself to work when the workplace is not necessarily the most inviting place to be? You know, this idea of them knowing who they are, the way that that came out of the research was that I noticed that a lot of the Black leaders I'd spoken to had spent quite some time in a Black majority country. And that may have been for a year. It may have been they've spent several years there. But they had had an experience where they were not in the minority. That had helped to build up their sense of self. Actually, I am important. I do matter. Or, as I've said, that they were actually educated abroad where it wasn't an issue for them. So that was where their sense of self was perhaps different from a white leader. And what you say about this idea of bringing your whole self to work, a little bit like you, yeah, it's a wonderful phrase, what does it mean? I think for black leaders, what it could mean is, am I in an environment where I can bring as much of myself as I would like to bring to work? Am I in an environment where people are sufficiently curious to ask me about myself so I can even reveal parts of myself that I would not typically talk about. So I think that there is some value in that, in that it helps, I think, the majority population, whoever they are, to reflect on the nature of the culture that they're creating and whether that culture automatically locks out certain people or makes it harder for them to be more of themselves at work. I really like the way that you position that because I think what is important there is you switch the emphasis from it's not about the individual and what it's about the organisation. And I think that is important that, you know, we're not continuously expecting individuals to change and adapt and fit in, but that organisations need to switch, you know, and that's the focus there. And I think that's, I really like the way that you position that. So there's other things I think you talked about in the, in the model black, I thought were you know, you you talked about this idea about having a sort of a strong and reliable black community, which perhaps, you know, speaks to some things you talked about, the experiences of maybe being educated out of the UK or having spent time in a majority black country. And you also talk about how one of these behaviours with intent is about how do you respond to a concept around sort of white fragility? Can you say a little bit more about that? Yes. One of the things that the model Black leaders had in common was their 
ability to respond positively to white fragility. Now, um, D'Angelo's term white fragility is a bit of a contested term, but essentially the idea is that when you speak to or confront white people, and I'm speaking in essentialist terms here, about something that they've said or something that's not quite right, that the automatic response is that they become a little bit defensive, unintentionally so. And what these black leaders were able to do was they knew when they might provoke that, and they were calmly able to offer something like, well, have you thought about reading a book? Or they would simply know to take a few deep breaths and not respond. So they were very aware of the behaviours, the attitudes, the response that they might invoke in their white colleague by challenging them. And they were ready with something that was very calm that they could offer them as a way of helping to educate them rather than doing something which perhaps could, in these are my words, raise the temperature. And I think that relates a little bit to, you talked about this idea about squaring and self-silencing and softening. And these were almost the strategies, is that right? Yeah, that they were using. And and I, you know, listened to the stories. Again, it was this idea about how you navigate with intent, I think. But it was almost this idea about people asking, how am I coming across? But having to moderate behaviours, but in line with pre-existing tropes. Is that, have I explained that properly? Yeah. So what would be happening is the black leaders are very, very aware of the tropes that permeate society. So, you know, black women are angry, black men are violent and aggressive. And many of their responses were just to ensure that they didn't fit in with the stereotype that's connected to that trope. So, for example, a lot of the black men talked about the fact that they soften their voices, literally soften their voices because they don't want to be seen as that aggressive large beast that might be in the mind of their white counterpart. And I'm not saying here that that's how all white people see black people, but they were very aware of it. So they'd soften their voice. One of them even said, you know, Barbara, if I'm in the room with a white woman for the first time, and this was a very large black guy, he said, I would often say to her, yeah, take a seat. I don't know whether you've been alone with a, you know, a black guy before like this, because he said, I often needed to name it because I could almost see it in their faces. So softening was an example that said, I'm not angry. I'm not violent. Don't worry. And that softening in particular showed itself in in many guises, some of them rather unhelpful. So black leaders would often soften their intellect. They didn't want to come across as too clever because they'd be seen as a bit uppity. So again, that has an impact for organisations, doesn't it? And in that they're missing out on ideas. So you're quite right. What was happening was they're very aware of these tropes. So they're thinking, what do I need to do in order to fit in? Let me become more like them. Let me spend all weekend reading up about rugby, if that's what's necessary. Let me learn to ski. And I'm being a little bit generalising here as I speak, if that's what's necessary. Let me hide aspects of myself that may not be helpful. You know, let me straighten my hair. And that's not to say that all black women with straight hair are trying to be white. But some of them did feel the need to be able to be seen in a way where their white leaders were able to see elements of them that the white leaders leaders could associate with. Taking this in terms of what individuals and organisations can do, because for me, again, to sort of reiterate this is, I I couldn't imagine the emotional labour 
and you know of having to all the time be able to to think about how am I being received how am I you know that kind of level of work and I think what's important you you talk about this that the black leaders were very willing to do the work in terms of mentoring and supporting other black leaders and white people within the organization like you said about curiosity but it's not just the work of black leaders it's for all individuals to think about how do we build an inclusive culture so what are some of the things that individuals can do and I'm you know both black and white in terms of making workplaces more inclusive you know you're quite right black leaders are prepared to do the work they do get slightly irritated, the ones I spoke to, because they're often being asked to do that work and it's not part of their day job and it's not counted towards any, any, anything else. But you're quite right. It's the role of the entire organisation. And, you know, I, I talk about things that you can do at a, at, in the book about at a very individual level. I mean, first of all, educate yourself read some different stuff without being too self-promotion. Read my book. At least it gives you an insight into the experience of Black leaders. You know, leverage your advantage. One of the things that David Lemmy talks about is if you have advantage, think about how you can use that to make the workplace a little bit more inclusive. Who could you sponsor? Who could you mentor? How can you use that advantage? You know, this isn't necessarily about calling out all kinds of negative behaviour, But what might you be doing by not saying anything? Are you actually colluding in part of that culture? So, you know, we talk about organisations, but organisations are essentially lots and lots of individuals doing things. And if all of those individuals did something different, then things could change. Again, you know, I talk about things like being curious, and it's an overused word, but again, ask that person, give them a chance to say things about themselves that they wouldn't normally say. So I think at an individual level, there there are lots of things that can be done, as well as the very deep work that individuals sometimes need to do. You know, I've worked in the area of leadership development for years and years, and we spend a lot of time with leaders holding up the mirror, we coach them, and we expect them to have some kind of deep, reflective struggle. We should expect them to do that as well around being a better inclusive leader. So, at an individual level, which helps the organisation, those are, are lots of things they can do. And, and clearly, organisations can think about their policies and practices. When they're recruiting, who's on the shortlist? Are they thinking about who's on the shortlist? When they're promoting, are they wondering why is it that black leaders are not putting themselves forward? So I think there are lots of cultural practices where, um, that they can reflect on as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, you talk about this sense of curiosity, which I think is really important and and to have conversations. And I think race is something that we are very unwilling to talk about and to have that sense of curiosity and about, you know, leveraging your advantage because you know as you said there are so, when you call out behaviors and you call out things you're observing some people have more power and are able to do that and some people when they call it out are more likely to put themselves in situations of vulnerability and one of the things you talk about in the book you said that you'd almost you were now in writing this book felt that you'd what had you come out as a 
black woman. And that, I think, was this idea about, again, about taking that, it's, it's a vulnerable step. Yes, that's very interesting. And you're right, that term coming out is we borrow from another group. So I was very careful only to use that at the end. But but I think we're talking about broad, more self-disclosure might be another way that I would put it. Yes. I mean, I've gone through my entire career up until about three or four years ago, not talking about being black, because that would, in my view, in the context in which I was working, have made me more vulnerable. If I had started to talk about incidents where I thought race might have played a role, and I'm the only Black person in the room, then I risk my career. So I was very careful about not doing that, and I made a conscious choice not to do it. It's sad that I had to make that choice, but I didn't feel a victim as I was making that choice. That was the choice, the intentional, to use your word, choice that I made. But you're quite right that it can be difficult for the Black leader or the minority, whoever they are, to speak up because then they will all know, and this was the case in my book, they all knew of an example of somebody who had spoken up and had become a problem. And they all knew of an example of somebody who then had been exited from the organisation. So you're right. If those who have advantage can use it, and wouldn't it be great if you went into an organization and and the CEO said, you know, we were challenged on this by a black worker and we saw them through the whole of their grievance process. We supported them and here's what happened. And the black leader is stood on the stage talking beside them as to what a positive experience that was. Wouldn't that be a great story? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, again, which is this one of the things at the end of the book, you talk about not just about being not racist, but anti-racist and the importance of white allyship, which I think in a way what you're talking about here is also for organisations, that organisations are really living by their values and stepping up and really enacting tangible change and difference. The other thing you talk about at the end is this, there's a there's an interesting bit at the end where you're having a conversation with your brother about how you've both negotiated work in different workplaces. And you talk about the, um, rather that there's the kind of the activist black and the model black and this, the middle black, which sounds, when I read it, it, it sounds like if we had workplaces that were inclusive and safe and you could call out behaviours, that this would almost sit within that space. I don't know if I've interpreted that right. I think you've put that really beautifully because, you know, the activist black at one extreme and again, I mean, what's very interesting, firstly, to say is I did interview some people from the book who hadn't risen up in organisations, often because they were the activist black. Many of them having been exited from organisations, some of them with huge amounts of money, but that didn't necessarily make it any better for them. So we ended up with this people who speak out, who say this isn't right, and become the activist black, a little bit like my my brother has, as we say. And then you have the model black, almost at the other extreme, as you say, the, the person who knows exactly how to connect with that majority culture. They know exactly what the right things are to do. And it would be wonderful if there was this space in the middle. And and I think there might be increasingly more of these people in workplaces, the middle black. Yeah, I can talk about what it's like to be black. I can say things are not acceptable. And I can also be accepted as a true leader in this organisation. But that requires probably more from the organisation 
than it does from the individual black person. It requires the organisation to say, yeah, it's okay to talk about race in the same way that we now talk about gender. Yeah, and I'm not saying we've got all the way there in gender, but it's a different conversation. And that's the kind of conversation that I'd like us to, to be able to develop. And this is true, you know, although we may not be there in terms of gender and progress, it's very acceptable to talk about gender. We'll talk about it fluidly within organisations. It doesn't provoke, you know, 20 years ago, if I'd said, you know, mentioned the gender word, I know that it would have, people's eyebrows would have been raised. But I think exactly as you said, we also have to be able to have conversations around things like race and organisation and, you know, that how do we build this kind of inclusive culture? Towards the end of your, you mentioned this very briefly about millennials or Generation X, said, I'll get it wrong, so coming through. And I guess one of the questions I have for you is, what advice would you give to aspiring leaders so that those people sort of entering the workplace and entering organisations? Yeah, I mean, I think the advice would be do something small, do anything. Because I think sometimes, regardless of who you are, particularly if you're from the majority culture, this race thing, where do I start? Well, do anything, read a book, become a little bit more aware of your biases, but just take a small step. It really is about baby steps for every individual. I think that's the advice I would give. And if I was talking to someone, you know, a new black leader coming into an organisation, I would say test out being more of yourself. Yeah, as much, because I think over the long run, it will help your white colleagues, and again, I'm talking black, white, to get the most out of you. But again, a little bit like we said earlier, the risk there is on the side of the black person. And, you know, the reminder to all of us is, it's not about fixing black people. It's not about vilifying white people. This is about helping individuals are helping people on an individual level, whoever they are, and it's about helping individuals to change the culture. And maybe it's because I've been brought up in this leadership strategy change school, I've gone through those schools, that I approach this work very much with a culture change lens. That's essentially what this is about. Yeah. And a culture change lens, as you said, almost about just small steps, small actions from the part of the individual. But but it, as you said, it is about organisations and organisations are individuals, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. And those who have power, let's be honest, the, some have more power and that they can change things. Brilliant. Thanks, Barbara. Any final comments or thoughts? I want people to be left feeling optimistic. Because one of the things I say is, you know, when I started to write the book, you know, one of my daughters said, oh, no, mommy, not another book about how terrible it is to be black. You know, we need something that will help black and white leaders to progress. So I'd like to leave on the note of optimism. We are making progress. We're starting to have better conversations around race. And this is very much a journey, not a destination. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is... And it is about conversations and starting from that point. As I said, I, I mean, I hugely enjoyed your book. I can highly recommend it. I found it incredibly helpful to, so the stories that they have, the people that you spoke to, to hear their experiences. Thank you, Barbara, for your time and what's been a really interesting discussion. 
Thank you for listening. This has been the Inclusive Exclusive brought to you by the World of Earth Institute at Henley Business School with my special guest, Dr. Barbara Bander and me, Melissa Carr. <laughs>